Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, December 19th, 2017, is a Sandra and Richard Rippey lecture on American history and was originally introduced on stage by Louise Muir, New York Historical's president and CEO. In the talk, historian Richard Brookheiser, in conversation with New York Historical's vice president for public programs, Dale Gregory, follows Governor Morris, Alexander Hamilton's best friend, to the battle at Valley Forge. And now, enjoy the podcast. Well, good evening, everyone. And Louise, thank you so much. Um, We thank you for all the amazing work you've done and are continuing to do and inspiring us. Let's give Louise a big hand as well. Now, before we begin, I just want to tell you, once the program is over, you might want to catch um, Richard Brookheiser's and my previous program, that is on C-SPAN 3, that famous channel. Um, And we talked about George Washington and the battle for Philadelphia, which is what their title is, which happened just before George Washington and the soldiers went to Valley Forge. So it will give you some more background. Um, I also want to thank Sandra and Richard Rippey as well for all the programs they're supporting, including... The following one on the evening of February 20th from this stage where uh, Rick and I will take you to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia with Hamilton's best friend. So there are still tickets left for that one. We hope to see you there and we will continue. Um, I won't go on and on. Maybe I'll save it for the end. Um, and that that's enough with that. So, Rick, um, could you give us a, just a three-minute uh, summary of what went on before they went to Valley Forge? Well, um, let's, let's look at the map here. Oops, there we go. Uh, this is Philadelphia. This is the capital of the new United States. Uh, what happened in 1777 was that the British came from New York which they had conquered the year before. They uh, mounted an expeditionary force on ships, which sailed into Chesapeake Bay up here. They landed at this place, which is called Head of Elk. This is the Elk River. And then they marched overland. They fought a battle with Washington and his troops at Brandywine Creek. Washington lost. The British took Philadelphia. Washington attacked them a second time at Germantown, but lost again. It looked as if there might be a third battle at this place called White Marsh, although nothing happened. The British marched out and then decided, ah, too risky, let's just go into winter quarters in Philadelphia. So uh, at the end of 1777, Lord Howe and his army are occupying what was formerly the capital of the United States, Congress has gone to York, Pennsylvania, which is 90 miles in this direction, uh, to the west. But Washington has taken his army 10 miles up the Schuylkill River to Valley Forge. 
Um, now, there was a possibility that he might have moved it further off uh, and where there actually might have been better accommodation because Valley Forge, there isn't even really a town there. I mean, there are a few houses. There is a forge from which it took its name. But he wanted to stay close to Philadelphia to make sure that the British were pinned there, that they just stayed in Philadelphia. They didn't, even though it was winter, they didn't try to venture out Uh, It would also restrict their opportunities for foraging. So that was the reason he chose this location fairly close to Philadelphia, even though there were a lot of problems. And now could you give us a brief uh, summary bringing us up to date of Governor Morris? Our hero. Yes, the hero. Governor Morris. Well, we kind of missed him in the last talk because he, he is spending his time This is uh, New York City where his family lives uh, in what's now the Bronx. And what he's been doing in 1777 is he's part of the core of patriot leadership that is running the new state of New York. Um, When New York was a colony, it had a royal governor. uh, It had a two-house legislature, uh, an upper house appointed by the governor, a lower house which was elected. This is all gone by the board. Uh, the last British governor, William Tryon, went in a British warship, and then off he sailed. So the, the state is being run for the patriot cause uh, by a group of politicians, some of the ex-legislators, and the three most capable and effective are three rather young men. There's John Jay, who's in his early 30s. Uh, he's from a... a um, prosperous Huguenot merchant family in New York City. There's Robert Livingston, who's from the very wealthy and large Livingston clan. Uh, They have an estate up the Hudson at Claremont, but he also comes into the city a lot to practice law. And the third man is Governor Morris, uh, who we've been describing as Hamilton's best friend. And uh, his family is a rich family. It's a powerful family. It's an old family. Uh, his grandfather, his paternal grandfather, was the colonial governor of the colony of New Jersey. Now, why was he in New Jersey rather than New York? It's because he was making so much trouble for the royal governor of New York that they bought him off by making him <laughs> the uh, colonial governor of New Jersey. Uh, Hamilton's, uh, uh, rather, Morris's father was a colonial judge. His uncle was the acting colonial governor of Pennsylvania. So uh, the Morrises were used to power. Uh, they, they were very self-confident about their social position. Uh, and in fact, Governor Morris, when the first stirrings of revolt are happening, uh, he's rather skeptical. Uh, he attends a meeting in New York City. There are a lot of Sons of Liberty there. They're, they're discussing British policies, which they're criticizing. And Morris writes... Uh, Uh, a rather blunt letter where he compares the people to reptiles in the spring. And he says, well, they're shedding their winter skin, but, you know, they may be biting pretty soon. So this this is the reaction of this young aristocrat, uh, very smart, very sure of himself. And he's not sure he likes this popular ferment. But when the crunch comes, he goes all in for the patriot cause And this pits him against a lot of his family. Uh, His his father married two wives, one after the other. So Morris has some elder half-brothers. One of them signs the Declaration of Independence. 
It's Lewis Morris. Another one is a general in the British Army. Um, His own siblings, he has uh, four full sisters. They all marry loyalists. His mother is a loyalist throughout the war. She stays at the family estate in what's now the Bronx, the Morrisania neighborhood. That was the name of the estate. It's now the name of the neighborhood. And uh, she stays there throughout the war. He, he, He visits her twice, and he has to get passes from both sides to cross lines just to see his aged and ailing mother. But despite these complicated family ties, he, he commits himself to the revolution. And I think part of it is he, he uses a phrase in one letter. He says, this is the seed time of glory. And he sees that if this revolution succeeds, America will stand on its two feet. It will become a great nation in the world like Britain, like France, like Spain. And he's, he's excited by that prospect. He wants to be a part of it. He wants to make it happen. So he has spent 1777 with his friends, uh, Livingston and Jay, uh, and, and other uh, politicians in the New York Provincial Assembly, just trying to run the patriot cause in the state. And it's tough because the British have attacked it from two directions. They, they have taken, uh, whoops, now. Yeah. They have taken New York City here in 1776. But then they're also trying to come, we don't have it on the map, but they're trying to come down from Canada via Lake Champlain. So it's like a pincer movement from north to south. They're trying to cut the state in half. Ideally, they'll join at Albany. And if they do that, New England will be separated from the rest of, of, of the United States, and this would be the beginning of the end. So Morris and his pals in the New York legislature are trying to organize resistance. Uh, They're trying to coordinate with George Washington, who is the commander-in-chief of all the American forces. Uh, And it's in this capacity that he meets Alexander Hamilton and begins a lifelong friendship with him. Uh, Because Hamilton, who at this 1777, Hamilton's 22 years old. Uh, Morris is 26. Uh, No, excuse me, Hamilton is 20. Sorry, (laughs) Hamilton is 20 years old. But he's already on Washington's staff. Um, He distinguished himself at the battles of Trenton and Princeton. He was an artillery captain in a New York unit. Washington is always looking for talented men, especially talented young men. He puts him on his staff. And one of Hamilton's many responsibilities is to handle the communications with the patriots in New York. So Hamilton is writing often to Livingston, to Jay, and to Morris. And so that's, that's where this relationship begins. Also, you know, Hamilton and Morris hit it off because they're, they're kind of alike. They're both smart. They're very verbal. Uh, they're both kind of arrogant. <laughs> um, they know they tend to be the smartest person in the room. And... Um, and, and, and so this is, this is the beginning of a bond that they form. Now, could you tell us a little about Lafayette? Did he come later, or was he at Valley Forge well, let's with get, them let's, also? Let's switch to Valley Forge. Now, how many people have seen this picture? I mean, it's like in every history textbook. It's about uh, last turn of the century. This is, oh, whoops, sorry. This is the artist. This man here, he painted himself into the picture. He's a man named William Trago. 
And of all the soldiers, he's the one who's looking at Washington. You see? so Because he's the artist. So that's what he did. Well, and his, his history is interesting. He had polio when he was young. And the, the way he painted was he jammed the brush into his right hand, and he used his left hand to move his right arm. So, so art was tough for this guy. And I think, I think that explains the power of this painting. You know, he knows what suffering is like. He knows what hardship is like. And I, I think he's really thrown himself into the condition of the soldiers he's depicting. I mean, you, you see they are dressed, but it's pretty ragged. Um, some of the pants are, you know, tattered. Uh, the, the, some of the uh, uh, footwear uh, is, is pretty battered and worn. Uh, you can see uh, snow uh, everywhere, including on Washington's hat and on his shoulders. A Valley Forge was not the coldest encampment in the Revolution. That would be Morristown the next year. But it was cold. It was ordinary winter cold. Uh, and what made it awful was lack of supply. Uh, and and you, you have to... Uh, Always bear in mind that the Continental Army, the American Army, is a brand new thing. We're only in the second year of the Revolution, the first year of independence. Uh, Some of the older officers have battlefield experience. They fought in the French and Indian War. But as an American army, there has been no such thing. So it is all being created. And it has to be recreated because... Many of the soldiers sign up for six months' terms. Then when they go home and they're replaced, you've got a new group of people, and they have to learn how to be soldiers all over again. And it it goes to the level of something as basic. I learned this when I was doing a book on Washington's leadership. It's as basic as digging latrines for your units. Now, that seems like a very obvious thing. But just because something is obvious doesn't mean it gets done. Somebody has to do it. So they had to develop procedures where when a unit sets up camp, the colonel will tell his adjutant to find a sergeant to get a party to dig a latrine. And, and that's, then that's read, if they have the tools. Well, They were missing uh, so many tools. Well, too. missing tools, yeah. Well, if you don't have tools, you better find something else to do it because you have to have this or everybody will get sick. Um, which also happens anyway. And then every three days, you have to fill it up and dig another. I mean, and this, you know, this is almost something comic to talk about, but but it had to be done. And this was something that, that Washington had to keep on top of, had to make, his sure, make sure his staff kept on top of it. So that's the, that is the state of the American army. It's, it's, it's a brand new thing. Everybody is feeling their way, how to, how to run such a thing, keep such a thing together. And now, uh, now you're dealing with this weather, this, this, all of this. And, and here they are. I mean, they're, they're not marching into some city or even town. This is nowhere. I mean, there, there are a few houses. Um, Washington will eventually stay in a house that belongs to the owner of the forge. He's a, a prosperous Quaker named Isaac Potts. 
uh, and Washington and his wife, Martha, uh, and his slave, his personal body slave, will rent rooms in this man's house. Well, I, I understood it was just one bedroom upstairs yeah. and one office downstairs. That's right. And, and the Potts family, you know, continued to o- occupy the rest of the house. But, and this, this tells you something about Washington's leadership, he did not move himself into the house until all his soldiers had put up their huts. They had to construct huts to uh, live through this winter. And until those were done... Washington stayed in a tent. Now, Washington had a nice tent. I mean, it wasn't a pup tent, but still, it's a tent. And, and that's an important aspect of his leadership. And, um, and while his generals, he allowed them to go stay in little houses in the area. That's right, if right. they could find something. But it's important for him, the commander-in-chief, to show to his men, I'm here with you, you're here with me, uh, we're in this Together, and he really did care. And he, yes, and he's not, you know, he's not a chummy sort of modern person. Uh, you know, Dwight Eisenhower, when he was in World War II, he had this great smile he could flash, and, and Washington was not a smiler, but he believed in rank, you know, distinctions of rank. But he also believed in being there. He yeah. believed in being there with his men. Uh, at at tough moments, at tough times. Now, before you read that, I just want to, we could go over it with the audience. When Rick said they lacked supplies, they they had no soap, they had no flour, or they had very little of it, they had no meat. Water was a problem, wasn't it? At least at the beginning, until they found where the the, uh, Schuylkill River. Well, yeah, but, you know, you don't want to... You don't want to drink from rivers in early America because God, okay. you know, God knows what's in them. So, so this is Washington himself. Now, but this, I, but was, I, this was just. I want to precede yeah. that uh, mm. with something from the diary of mm. a surgeon in a Connecticut unit. He was a doctor. He was Doctor Waldo, and he was a surgeon with the Connecticut line for two years. And so here's what he's writing in his diary as as the army marches into Valley Forge. Uh, December 12th, we were ordered to march over the river. It snowed. I'm sick. Ate nothing. No whiskey. No forage. Lord, Lord, Lord. The army were till sunrise crossing the river, cold and uncomfortable. Then December 14th, I'm sick, discontented, out of humor. Poor food, hard lodging, cold weather, fatigue, nasty clothes, nasty cookery, vomit half my time. Why are we sent here to starve and freeze? What sweet felicities have I left at home? A charming wife, pretty children, good beds, good food, good cookery, all agreeable, all harmonious. Here, all confusion, smoke and cold, hunger and filthiness. There comes a bowl of beef soup full of burnt leaves and dirt, enough to make a Hector spew. So that's from a surgeon. Now here's what Washington himself now, just writes to Congress. Tell him this is just when he, he writes to the president of the Continental Congress. Right, Henry Lawrence. And he, what he wanted at the moment, he heard, he got information that the British were leaving Philadelphia and they were going to go forage for food and supplies in between Philadelphia and Valley Forge. 
and he wanted to attack them. So he wanted to round and rouse the soldiers. And what he found was he heard there was mutiny the night before. He, they were hungry. They were sick. They, I don't there know. There were the, no conditions. There were no conditions. And this no is condition. what part, this is just an excerpt from part of this long letter he wrote to uh, the president of the Continental Congress. I can assure those gentlemen that it is a much easier and less distressing thing to draw remonstrances in a comfortable room by a good fireside than to occupy a cold, bleak hill and sleep under frost and snow without clothes or blankets. However, although they seem to have little feeling for the naked and distressed soldier, I feel superabundantly for them, and from my soul pity those miseries which it is neither in my power to relieve or prevent. And so maybe this explains, uh, sets up Governor Morris appearing at Valley Forge because he is sent from New York by the state to be one of New York's congressmen. Now, this is not under the Constitution. It's under the Articles of Confederation. So there is no president. There's no judiciary. There is Congress. And every state gets to send two to five congressmen, although each state has one vote. They all have one equal vote. So uh, New York picks Morris to be one of its congressmen because he's young and he's smart. Um, They trust him. So he goes to York, Philadelphia, 90 miles to the York, Pennsylvania, 90 miles to the west of Philadelphia. And uh, virtually as soon as he arrives, he's made part of a group of congressmen who are sent to Valley Forge to observe the condition of the army and to report. And when Morris arrives, uh, he is he's shocked by what he sees. Uh, he is shocked by the distress that uh, Dr. Waldo and that uh, Washington were describing. And he wrote a letter uh, to his New York friend, John Jay. Quotes a little Latin, Hugh Miseros. Hugh, eh, Hugh, it's often translated alas. It really means, ah, oh my God, that might be idiomatic. Hugh Miseros, what wretches. The skeleton of an army presents itself, naked, starving, out of health, out of spirits. So this is what he, what he finds at Valley Forge. He goes there in December, and he stays there through April uh, to, to learn all he can about the army, how it's working, how it's not working. Uh, and he will, uh, at the end of his time there, he will draw up a report that he makes to Congress. But... You know, I think the the two important things that are happening to him, first is his admiration for the Army and for George Washington. I mean, he sees the sufferings of these men uh, who are fighting for America. They've fought two battles with the British outside Philadelphia. They're hanging on through this winter to see what the following year will bring. And they're hungry, they're cold, they're sick. I should, I should tell you, there are 11,000 men at Valley Forge. 2,500 of them will die over this winter. 1,000 will desert. That's how, that's how tough and, it and is. And many were sent to hospitals, in York, to the one in York and one in Lancaster as well, which 
no one wanted to go to because you really go to the hospitals to die because the conditions right. were terrible there. Well, the one thing, I mean, the one kind of good medical thing that does happen at Valley Forge, this is where Washington inoculates his army for smallpox. Um, one little known fact mm-hmm. is that the revolution is fought during a smallpox outbreak in all of eastern North America. And the Revolutionary War helps spread it because people are moving around. I mean, people aren't just, you know, living on their farms. You've got young men coming together uh, to serve in the army, and, and their units themselves are, you know, going here and there into different states. Uh, so this disease spreads, and they don't have vaccination yet. That, that's not invented until the very beginning of the 19th century. And but, did this affect the British too? Yes, it did, but the British... Uh, know how to deal with it. They already have a procedure. If if a British soldier comes down with smallpox, uh, there's a surgeon in every regiment. He's pulled aside. He's inoculated. Anyone else uh, around him is inoculated. So you know they know what to do. They they've got their surgeons. They've they've got it all up and running. Um, America, no. Uh, it's it's a disease that people are very suspicious of. Inoculation is when you give yourself smallpox. You induce a case of smallpox, and there's still a mortality rate, but it's much lower than catching it. Uh, and, you know, people, uh, people in colonial America were suspicious of inoculation, many of them. There were some colonies had laws against inoculation because they figured, well, there's a risk. Why do we want to even take a risk? So there were colonies that forbade inoculation. But... You know, now, uh, now America is in a revolution. There's a lot more mobility, a lot more potential for disease. And so Washington makes the decision here at Valley Forge, I have to inoculate the whole army. So, and he does it in stages. So uh, it's like a six-week um, cure that you undergo. You, you have to be inactive uh, for six weeks. And he has to do it in secret because, of course, if the British find out, they might risk a winter attack, right? I mean, if, 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 you know, X percentage of the American army is sick, why not just come out and hit them? So uh, they only find out what was going on until the very end of the uh, winter, winter season. Washington manages to pull this off in secret. It's, it's one, of his, um, one of his smartest and, and, and most uh, revolutionary uh, acts of, of, of generalship, and therefore his, his men are immune from smallpox uh, for the rest of the war. But, uh, okay, so this, this is happening in, in the midst of, uh, of, of all these grim conditions, and Morris sees it, and, and he will admire the army, and he will admire Washington for the rest of his life. Um, you know, and psychologically, it's interesting because Morris admires no one, I mean, Morris, uh, he's not only um, rich and smart, he's tall and he's good-looking. So he's literally used to looking down on almost everyone he meets. Uh, And so Washington is uh, about as tall as he is. (laughs) But, um, and he's he's 25 years older, 20 years older. So there's like a paternal, there's a paternal connection going on. But Morris just... If I can use the expression, he falls in love with Washington, and he never falls out of love with him. He just thinks, this is the man. This is the man who's making this work. Um, Any way I can help this man, 
I will do it. Now, Washington had been writing letters and really begging for help in some mm-hmm. way. And you and you were and I were talking about this and I said how, you know, that the it seemed that the Continental Congress it was written um, that they were putting committees together and they were putting people, appointing people to certain committees that had absolutely no experience with what the purpose of the committee was so that the people who were supposed to be purchasing and distributing and working with um, Washington at Valley Forge. A lot of them don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. And also they were trying to get a commission and really make money on a lot of what, Mm -hmm. rather than getting the food and distributing it. Right. Um, One letter uh, in this letter that Morris wrote to John Jay, another thing he says is that the currency and the Congress are depreciated. Now, the currency means we're just printing money. I mean, this, this is the only way we're able to raise it. Um, Congress has no power to tax. It can ask states for money, but if states don't give them the money, then, then they have no power to uh, wring it from them. So what do they do instead? They, they print paper money, and it inflates away in value. So the currency is depreciated. Then he also says Congress is depreciated, and that's because the great men who, who were there in 1776, a lot of them aren't there anymore. Uh, Sam Adams has gone back to state government. Um, so has Jefferson. Uh, John Adams is about to leave to Europe as a diplomat. Franklin has already gone off. Uh, Washington was a member of Congress. He's now commander-in-chief. So... Um, you know, you're down. You're down to the B team, and, and there's 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 some talent in there. There's some good guys, but uh, it's also a very small group. I mean, when they're there in York, they meet in the town uh, courthouse, the county courthouse, and sometimes there are only twenty men. As you opposed know. to how, well, how many uh, were in well, the original group? The, the maximum you could be up to forty-five. I mean, if every state uh, sends five people, it's thirteen times five. But uh, so sometimes they have 20, sometimes they don't have a quorum. You know, they're just, every state should have at least two men there. And, you know, sometimes they've only got one, so they, they lose their vote. Um, so, you know, they're just, they're just scraping along. And, and also the, the citizens of Pennsylvania weren't all that helpful either. Well, you know, a lot of them are Quakers, and, and they have a religious objections to warfare. And that doesn't mean they're pro-British, but that they're also not going to be actively pro-American. Many of them, most of them. Uh, the other thing is the British have um, hard currency. You know, they will pay you in pounds sterling, which is the strongest currency in the world. Uh, the Americans will pay you in continental currency. Um, there's a lot of counterfeiting. Uh, I, I read that... Uh, one of the American bills, the $30 bill, it's spelled Philadelphia, Philadelphia. They put a K in for an H. So it's like, would you accept this thing? I mean, and people don't. They don't. And in fact, you know, Congress is so um, um, out of ideas that they begin to tell Washington, well, just take what you need. Still. Just take it, you know, take it from the local farmers. And and Washington resists this for the longest time, and, and he, he has two reasons. He says, uh, you're going to turn uh, the countryside against us, 
And he said, if you allow soldiers to do this, they will become undisciplined. You know, if soldiers are sent out to just take stuff, where's that going to stop? They're going to get into the habit of doing that, and you don't want to do that. He finally does end up doing that at the very end of his stay in Valley Forge, but this is something he's very reluctant to do. So was uh, Morris able to get something going, set up structure? When was he able to get this working? What, what he is able to do, it's, it's not while the army is at Valley Forge, and, and the worst of it goes um, through April, you know, through the arrival of spring. That's when Morris goes back to Congress. He's, he's able to start a process of serious thinking about these problems. He writes a long report uh, to Congress. He proposes, he, he surveys the whole ground. Uh, he looks at how the army is structured. He says, you know, you have to have a new quartermaster. You have to have someone who knows what he's doing, and it has to be run effectively. Uh, he says, we have to, we, Congress, we have to reform our finances. We can't just keep having these ad hoc committees. You know, every time we have to do something, we create a committee to do it. And so we have, like, dozens of committees, and they're not effective. Uh, we need um, a, a financial officer with a controller and an auditor, you know, just to be in charge of all the money we're raising and all the money we're dispersing. Uh, we also need you know, an officer who's in charge of foreign affairs. We need an officer who's in charge of military affairs. I don't mean a military person, but I mean, you know, a man in a position. Did Hamilton work with him on this? No, he came, you know, he, Hamilton is at Valley Forge also, so they may have talked about it. But these were, you know, these were ideas that Morris was, Mm -hmm. was coming up with out of his own head. Uh, He also proposed taxes. He said, we need to have a tariff, you know, a a tax on, um, on imported goods, we need a poll tax, which is a head tax. You know, every everyone will pay whatever it is, some small amount. And these were very radical ideas, and Congress did not did not buy all of them. Probably the two most important things that happen is they do get an effective quartermaster by the spring, which is Nathaniel Green, who's one of Washington's best generals. He's a Rhode Island, and that's the man. person who supplied or purchased who supplies. or both. Well, he's in charge of the whole thing. He's in charge of the whole thing. And Green accepts it only on the condition that he can still have field command because he's also a great fighting general. So Washington accepts that and gives him a sort of double duty. So that's a good thing. Uh, and, and then two years down the road, Congress finally does have a, a finance minister to run all the money. And this is Robert Morris, no relation but he's a Philadelphia merchant. He's the richest man in the United States. And he agrees to, to take this on. He puts some of his own money into it. He puts his reputation behind it. It would be like if Warren Buffett were made Treasury Secretary or Bill Gates or someone like that. Uh, and and, and he, he takes on as his assistant, Governor Morris, so the two of them are working together. And they end up in France later on together. Well, right? uh, Robert Doing doesn't business? go to France. Well, no? he, Robert does business all over the world, okay. and he sends Governor to France to, to watch over his own affairs. But that's, that's getting past the war. But what they're doing during the war is, is finally uh, putting some order into all, all the money uh, matters that 
Congress is struggling now, with. Now, while Gouverneur Morris was still there, he was there through April, did he meet Baron von Steuben? Steuben. Everybody met Baron von Steuben. Uh, Baron von Steuben made sure you knew who he was. He's a Prussian volunteer because we have agents in Europe who are looking for friendly officers with military experience. Uh, Steuben gets a letter of uh, recommendation from Benjamin Franklin. Uh, He actually is a baron. You may read uh, in some books that that was a bogus title, but he was legitimately entitled to be a baron. He said he was on the staff of Frederick the Great, which he wasn't. That was not true. But he had fought in Frederick's army. And so uh, the Prussian army was the most professional army in the world in the late 18th century. So he had that experience. But Steuben's brilliance is when he comes to America and he sees the soldiers he has to deal with, he modifies the Prussian drill for what they can do. I mean, the Prussian army is for lifers. You know, you go in it and you're in that for 25 years or 30 years. That's your life. And he knows these are not these men. Um, these, are, these are farmers. These are, you know, uh, merchants' sons. Maybe they're here for six months or a year. Uh, I can't subject them to the kind of complicated drill that the Prussian army did. So I'm going to simplify it. And he also, he writes a fascinating letter to one of his um, your pals from Europe. Uh, he says, if I tell uh, a German or, or a Frenchman to do something, he does it. But if I tell an American why he has to do it, then he does it. So he, but that's brilliant. I mean, he grasped the psychology of the men he was dealing with. He was also a showman. Uh, his English was not so good. So he would swear in French and German, which were his main languages, and he would have his officers translate his curses and his swearing. And the men loved this. I mean, he knew they loved this. I mean, he, he's putting on a show, you know, and he'll, he'll do a blue streak of Verdamta and all this kind of stuff. And the soldiers think, oh, this is great. You know, look at this German guy. Isn't this fun? He really knows what he's doing. And, you know, showmanship is part of leadership. And he also, but he, he writes a book, of, uh, an instruction manual for the Continental Army. And one of the most interesting things in that manual is he says, Officers must be personally interested in the health of their men. You know, if their men are sick, you must visit them where they are sick. You must pay attention to them. You know, and this is all about establishing a bond with the troops you're leading with. So he was a find. He was a find. How long did it take him to train the men to get ready to... Uh, Really, by the the end of the winter encampment at Valley Forge, the American army knows how to drill, and knows how to maneuver in the field. I mean, that's the point of drilling. It's not just to do the drills, but when you, when you know how to execute these drills, you can change your front in a battle, battlefield situation. You know, if you're facing here and the attack comes from here, you can turn to meet it. You know, every, everybody can do it, and you can do it in a unified fashion. Because, you know, a musket, one musket is not very deadly. What's deadly is 20 of them firing at once. So you have to have unified fire. That's the importance of being able to maneuver. And, and, and so by next year, um, we are able, uh, we fight a battle with the British in Monmouth, New Jersey, which is kind of a drawn battle. 
But afterwards, the letters of British officers show that they think this is a different enemy. Well, they lost a lot of men. Well, uh, battle, both, right? both sides yeah. did. I mean, it was, it was hot as hell, and actually more people died. It's from, 100, from, 100 degrees, 100 right? degrees, yes. More people died from heat stroke than from bullets. But after this battle, um, the British knew they were fighting another army of professionals. It's not just rustics with muskets anymore. So I wonder, so there, there are all these letters and descriptions of the men at Valley Forge, the soldiers, naked, no blankets, no shoes, disease. What, how did they get the strength? How did they get into a condition for Baron Van Steuben to take them out to the fields and train them? Well, partly it's giving you something to do, right? I mean, you're not just sitting cold in your hut or you're not just digging latrines, or you're not just you know, try, carrying water up from the Schuylkill River. This is something interesting. Um, this is something new and different. Uh, this is being done by this unusual, compelling man. Um, it's a little fun. Uh, maybe it'll work. Uh, you know, and, and, and so much of, 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 of soldiering is... Unit cohesion. It's the, the feeling that you feel for your comrades. And so it's, it's giving them something to do together. This is also the importance of Washington being there and his wife being there. You know, Martha comes up and she's there at Valley Forge. So that's a sign that, well, our commander-in-chief is taking this very seriously. Look at this. His wife, you know, his wife has come up to be with him. And, um, you know, he's, he's not going to take off. I mean, he, he's not going to go home to see his wife because his wife is here. I mean, his home's here and, for and this winter. And she was with him at all the winter At camps, all the winter right? encampments. So it's, it's his home is with us. This is where he is. He's with us, and we're with him. And that's the, 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 the source of the cohesion that this army has. And then uh, by the time spring comes, and we have by this time had an alliance with France. France has openly formed an alliance with us. Uh, They're impressed by the victories in upstate New York. They're impressed by the endurance of Washington around Philadelphia. Form an alliance. And uh, the American troops go through this elaborate uh, firing display. It's like we're all going to fire in, in sequence. You know, we're going to fire off our guns in sequence and to show the French how Was skillful we are. this at Valley Forge? This is at Valley Forge, the very end. And uh, they're showing off. You know, look, look what we can do. We can do the kind of thing that you can do. And, um, you know, it, 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 it revives their spirits. So they're, they're willing and they're able to go on. And was Lafayette there and did he help? Um, ah, Frenchman, yes. With the, the French. The best Frenchman. Uh, this support. guy, Lafayette, is such a good young man. We got, we got the best of him. We really did. He, he came over uh, in 1777. He was 19 years old. Uh, he was captain in the Dragoons, a uh, wealthy nobleman. And he was just inspired by the word of this 
struggle across the ocean. That's also against the British, who are the hereditary enemy. Uh, His father had been killed when he was two in one of France's wars with Britain, so he's got a family grudge. And he comes over, and uh, as I said, we we have agents in Europe who are trying to encourage officers to come. Von Steuben is one of them. And in a way, we, they're almost too successful. You know, all these guys are coming over and we've made promises. Well, if you come, you'll be a major general, you'll be this, you'll be that. So they come over and they expect these ranks. And Americans who've been fighting for a year or two years, officers, you know, in line for promotion. And, well, how come these, these uh, European guys are being stuck in ahead of me? And there's just a lot of, you know, there's, there's resentment and cross-purposes. And, and so... Here comes yet another one. This this, uh, kid uh, comes in to see Washington when they first meet. It's in August of 77. And Washington says, well, you know, our troops must not seem very impressive uh, to someone who's just come from the army of the king of France. And Lafayette says the perfect thing. He says, I'm not come here to teach. I'm come here to learn. And then that's like they bond at that instant. And, and remember, Washington has no children. Lafayette has no father. I mean, and this, this, is, this is really... And that, that dynamic works more or less with a lot of people, including Hamilton, including Morris. With Washington and Lafayette, it's the perfect fit. And, and Lafayette is a good officer. Uh, he's capable. Uh, he does what he's told. He doesn't make trouble. Uh, he admires Washington. Uh, He refuses attempts to manipulate him by people who are trying to make trouble for Washington uh, because there's always that going on and uh, Lafayette will have no part of it. And I wanted to read you a quote from a a letter of Lafayette. This is so charming. It's a defense of Washington. And he's writing about uh, the Trenton-Princeton campaign. That campaign of last winter would do one of the finest part of the life of Caesar, Conde, Turenne, and those men whose any soldier cannot pronounce the name without an enthusiastic adoration. So, you know, he's still learning his English. But what he knows, uh, like Morris, uh, like Hamilton, is that uh, this is the guy. Uh, This is the, the man who is leading the cause, if anyone can make this work. Washington is the one. And didn't Frederick the Great have some nice comments for Washington? Oh, yeah, he did. After the battles of Trenton and Princeton, he, um, you know, he, he said, well done. Very well so, done. Very right. well done, yeah. Well, so, he would have said it in German. So, so we have a few questions here from okay. the audience. Um, why do you think Morris is not remembered like the other founders, such as Hamilton? Well, uh, he's not on the money, for one thing. Uh, I think he had too much of a sense of humor. I think that's part of it. Uh, These were serious guys. Franklin obviously has a sense of humor, but, you know, he's an old man. We we sort of expect that from him. But Morris is a cocky, funny young man. That he appeared to take things lightly. Yeah, he did. He did. I mean... But he also didn't. I mean, he threw yeah. himself into this cause, and he, he worked hard for it. Uh, but he also, he was very caustic. Uh, if he, he didn't suffer fools, uh, if he thought you were stupid or incompetent, he'd let you know. Uh, pe- people didn't like that. 
And I think that sort of, you know, clung to his reputation a bit. And, you know, the irony is, is here's the man who, who drafted the Constitution, which, which we will get to. But, you know, how many people know that versus how many people know that Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence? It's I think just, most people don't know it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just this huge disparity of reputation. And, and part of that, I think, is attributable to his uh, uh, personality. Okay, here's another question. Okay. What was Governor, Governor Morris's relationship with Henry Knox? Um, they, and who, who tell everyone who Henry Knox is? Ah, Henry was. Knox. Henry Knox is the Boston bookseller who learns uh, military skill by reading his books and becomes a a very talented artillery commander. Uh, He's the man who brings cannon from Fort Ticonderoga to Boston during the winter to raise the siege of Boston. He hauls them across the state of Massachusetts in the snow and over icy rivers. It's It's a Herculean feat, and he manages it partly because he's a big guy and he, he shouts and yells and bullies people but and hauls cannon himself sometimes, but he's just determined and he's organized and he gets it done. And Morris and Knox, uh, they get along. Uh, it's, it's part of Morris's admiration for these military men and, and for the good ones, for the talented ones. Um, someone asked, there's another question, and this is a bit of a combination. Did Hamilton draft the letter that Washington wrote to Henry Lawrence, the letter that we quoted. I don't to know. The Continental, yeah. I don't know. Did Hamilton and Morris Because communi- there were yeah. more. Hamilton wasn't the only guy on the staff. There were always um, a number of, of, of men. The, the oldest one was a, a Colonel Harrison, who was, uh, I think, like 10 or 15 years older than Hamilton. So, you know, the musical aside, we shouldn't think that Hamilton is the only staff member Washington has, but, he, but he's certainly one of the most valuable ones. Did Hamilton and Morris communicate during the Revolution? If so, how? Could letters travel through enemy lines? Uh, no, <laughs> only if they were stolen, which did happen sometimes. Um, they stole a letter of Washington's, and no, excuse me, a letter to Washington, and the British inserted a sentence in it about how you will have to meet pretty little Kate, the washerwoman's daughter. So they're, you know, they're, they're trying to plant like a, a sexual harassment story on, uh, <laughs> uh, on Washington. So that did happen. No, you couldn't. I mean, Morris was able, uh, I shouldn't say no, absolutely. He was able to write his mother, even though she was uh, across enemy lines. And most of those letters got through. But, but any, you know, anything of military importance, no. Where was Governor Morris during the siege of Yorktown? He was uh, helping to pay for it. (laughs) Uh, He and Robert Morris were in Philadelphia at their wit's end. Uh, They had tried everything. They were kiting checks. They were uh, borrowing left and right. Uh, And they, as they rode to uh, Congress to make a last desperate plea, they encountered uh, men from a French fleet which had just landed with a load of silver. So that's how the Yorktown campaign got paid for. It was one of the all, many almost miraculous events 
that made this incredibly complex operation, naval uh, armies, different armies converging, uh, how, it, how it was pulled off. Why was there an entrenched resistance to a regular standing army? Well, it's fear, um, and not unreasonable fear. Uh, every American had read Julius Caesar. They'd, uh, the educated ones had read Plutarch, which was Shakespeare's source. They knew that the Caesars had overthrown the Roman Republic. Uh, Julius Caesar was killed before he could do it, but his nephew Augustus uh, succeeds in doing it. Uh, They also knew about the English Civil War, which had uh, deposed and beheaded Charles I, but then the parliamentary government became the Lord Protectorate under Cromwell. The commander of the um, parliamentary forces becomes, in effect, the king. Cromwell's head is on the currency. So, uh, So they knew the danger of military leaders, and, and they're always, they're wary about that. And Washington knows this wariness. I mean, he shares it himself. And he is, he is careful throughout the war to always defer to Congress. I mean, if, if he thinks they're not doing something they ought to do, he will write them, you know, letter after letter, asking, begging, pleading. But he will not do it himself. He will never do it himself. I was surprised to see that. Well, uh, it's because... The extent to which he... He, he asks. Wouldn't take... Yeah. Or you, the extent to which he wouldn't take advantage. Well... well it wouldn't take action. That he, he asked for everything, begged for everything repeatedly. Well, because he's, you know, he's been in colonial politics mm-hmm. himself. He was in the Virginia House of Burgesses for 16 years. Uh, so he also has a political background. And he, he knows what American politics is like and what American voters are like. He has is, he is faced American voters himself. Uh, and, and he just has a feeling, I mean, it's, it's both conscious and it's also in his bones, that this is how it has to work. Now, how do you think he withstood, had the patience while he was watching his men die, you know, leave, uh, abandon the army, um, and waiting for something to happen. I mean, till they appointed Gouverneur Morris and a, a group of people to come. Well, he, you know, he's not idle. He's writing them. He's and, and he has, you know, he has friends in Congress that he uh, sometimes is more frank with than, than he is with other people. But also, you know, Congress picked him for this job. He didn't make up his own job. Congress picked him. He is working for Congress. And there was and he some resistance, that. right, for well, quite a while. Well, there, there are moments, you know, after 1777, he loses two battles outside Philadelphia. Horatio Gates has won two battles around Saratoga. People say, well, two is bigger than zero. Why don't, why don't we have Gates be our commander-in-chief, not, not Washington? And so there, there's grumblings um, uh, along that theme. And then it... It, it, it peters out um, partly because the people who are in on the scheme fall out among themselves. And, uh, and, and when people come right up against it, they think, really, do we want to get rid of Washington for Gates? No, no, we don't. But Washington is, is, is always sees himself as 
working for Congress and at the very end of the war uh, when he, he, he writes them, how do you want me to return my commission to you? And they tell him, well, we're sitting in Annapolis. We want you to come to Annapolis. And when you come in the room, we will be seated, but you will stand. And you will not hand your commission directly to the president of Congress. He will send someone to take it from you. I mean, it is all done to show that we are your boss. And he, fine. He goes right along with this. Um, and then he reads this, this, this very moving brief letter of retirement. And, of course, everybody there is in tears. And his reputation just <laughs> grows even more. But it grows because... He won't make that move. He won't grab. He won't grab for that. He knows what he he knows he is fighting for a republic, a republic of free men. He's not fighting for Washington land. Well, our time is up. Okay. Okay. So. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.